Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 81 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. This week I'm looking at feeders for getting those all-important stores into our colonies in time for the coming autumn and winter months. short and sweet a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span a beekeeper in fact just like me welcome back everyone to another podcast and a special hello to everyone studying at penn state university over in the usa particularly a hello to my daughter beth who's studying at penn state and who i've not seen since last christmas although with skype and facetime it sometimes feels like she never went away actually so uh, hi beth stay tuned because i know you're desperate to hear how i'm going to be feeding my bees this autumn before i get into that detail of the feeders and talk a little bit about the different types that we've got here's this week's beekeeping update it's been a quieter week this week than last week colonies appear to have realized that summer is over and are settling down in preparation for the months ahead. Not a single queen cell to be seen in any colony inspected this last week, and all of them appear to be queen right at long last, so that's fantastic. I did spend a hot sunny morning with Pete cutting away brambles from a neglected tractor at the alpaca apiary. The tractor sits at the entrance to the apiary, but for various reasons it hasn't been used for a few years and Pete has had his eye on it for a while, so I suggested to the owners that they might like to move it on and that's why Pete and I spent around an hour cutting away brambles and nettles to reveal the tractor in all its glory. I have to say, I wouldn't mind having a run around in it myself to cut down some of the nettles and thistles that have grown so high this summer. Some of the thistles are around six feet tall. I think they've done so well because the apiary also happens to be beside the alpaca poo pile. Plenty of fertiliser feeding into the ground for everything to look really lush and healthy. Anyway, the plan is to get the tractor working again. It currently has a dead battery and to then get the nettles, thistles and brambles around the apiary all chopped down before Pete makes off with the tractor. Then at least I might be able to get a mower in and keep on top of it. It does tend to get very overgrown very quickly. The apiary also happens to be the last remaining area of orchard in the old farm that once stood here, and it's full of pear trees. I'm hoping that if I can clear a few more trees, we might get a crop of nice pears next year. Maybe I'll be allowed to have a drive around on the tractor too. If that happens, I'll be sure to get the camera running as it's likely to end badly, probably knocking hives and feeders full of syrup off stands. With that thought in mind, I should turn my attention back to the main topic of today's podcast, that of feeders to feed the bees this autumn. I guess firstly, it would be useful to discuss why we feed at all during the autumn months, and it is fundamentally as a result of removing a honey crop from our bees. For me, it provides an income, albeit relatively small compared with many commercial bee farmers, and as such, it's an important part of my beekeeping practices. I know there are many hobbyist beekeepers who leave a full super of honey on their bees to overwinter, and that's fantastic, that's perfectly fine, and if you're one of those beekeepers, then a lot of what I'm discussing in this podcast simply won't be relevant, as you'll already have food stores set up on your hive. For other beekeepers who do want to take a honey crop from their bees for personal use or for friends and family, 
it will probably mean reducing the amount of available food stores for your bees to what remains in the brood box. Unless, of course, you've had a good year and want to remove maybe just one or two supers and leave one behind for the bees. As with many tasks and processes in beekeeping, there are many ways of doing things, and provided you're not reducing the bees to a level where they may starve out, I don't think any one method should be thought of as the only way to go. So that said, I remove all of my supers and extract the honey, leaving just the brood box. I'm mostly on commercial brood boxes, remember, which have a larger available area than that of the more popular national hives here in the UK. And I also have some Langstroth hives, which are of a similar volume to the commercial beehive. The colonies in the commercial and Langstroth hives are perfectly able to overwinter with just the brood box in place, as they can hold large quantities of food, enough for all but the most hungry colonies to survive the winter. I should add that I am based in Norfolk here in the UK, and we do seem to have had some fairly mild and dry winters of late, and that in turn helps the bees. This last year in particular, many colonies were out early, foraging and bringing back pollen all through the late months of winter. But that's not to say it will happen again this year. So being prepared and well stocked up with supplies is a wise step to take. For all my national hives, I'll be placing an empty super of drawn comb beneath the brood box and feeding with syrup to allow them to store additional food. Over the years, I've amassed a number of different feeders, a quick look on the internet shows a wide range of feeding options and there's usually something out there to suit for every beekeeper. I'll come to my favourite shortly, but first let's look at some of the options that I've used and I'll try to explain the pros and cons that I've personally found with each. First up is the 2.25 litre rapid feeder, previously known as a four-pint feeder. It looks like a round, hollow plastic donut with a cup that fits over the hole in the middle and a lid that covers the reservoir of syrup so the bees don't get in and drown. You place the feeder on top of the crime board over the escape hole and the bees come up through the centre of the feeder and down the inside to access the syrup. The inner face of the feeder where the bees feed is usually textured or ribbed so that the bees have something to grip onto. This feeder works brilliantly, and if you only have a couple of colonies at the bottom of the garden, they work really, really well. One thing you do need to do is to fit a tall enough eek or an empty super to hide the feeder and to protect it, and to allow you to put the roof back on. But because the feeder has a cup that covers the central feed area, you can top up the feeder without exposing the bees, and thus add more feed without having to disturb the colony. The only drawback for me is the volume of feed that it holds, and if I'm feeding at a distant apiary, the feeder would be empty before I return to top it up. This obviously isn't a problem if your hive is in your garden, and you can manage the feeding process almost on a daily basis if you wanted to. Next up is the frame feeder, and as the name suggests, the feeder takes the place of a frame and has a hollow middle section that you can fill with syrup and it gets the feed next to the bees within the brood box. I've had frame feeders over the years, and for me, I've never been able to manage them, so I'm not drowning bees at some point. Add to this the fact that you have to open the hive to refill the feeder, I'm already struggling to find a way to recommend it. Anyway, I'm sure there are many beekeepers out there who use these feeders successfully, but for me, they just don't fit in with my beekeeping. Moving on, 
The next feeder worthy of mention is the contact feeder. These come in a range of sizes and can fit on a small nuke box or be scaled up to feed full-size colonies. They're basically a bucket with a lid that fits tightly around the bucket and has a hole cut in the middle with a piece of metal gauze stuck over the hole. When the bucket is filled with syrup and inverted, a vacuum forms inside and stops the syrup from running straight out. I really like these feeders and use them on a variety of occasions. There are a couple of drawbacks. Again, you need an empty super or brood box for those buckets so that you can put the roof back on. And you'll need an empty bucket to invert the filled feeder over to allow the syrup to pour out before the vacuum establishes itself. One definite plus is that they're affordable, costing only a few pounds for the larger feeders. There is another positive which I'll come back to later in the podcast and counters a negative challenge that I've faced with some of the jumbo style feeders. You can of course make your own contact feeders using food grade buckets and simply punch lots of tiny holes in the lid. Just don't make the holes too big or the syrup will simply flood out of the feeder and you'll end up with a large puddle beneath the hive and probably lots of drowned bees. Next up, is a range of feeders I'd call jumbo feeders. These are made to the same footprint of the hive that you're using and have an access point for the bees to move up into the feeder in a similar way to the rapid feeder, but allowing for far more bees to gain access to the feeder at the same time. These are great for getting lots of feed into a colony quickly, not just in the autumn, but at any time of the year. It could be a starving colony or a shook swarm or bees that are getting ready to draw out more foundation for you. These feeders just work brilliantly at getting feed to the bees quickly and there are several variations. The first type that I ever bought is called the Ashforth feeder. It has a slot at one end and a quick tip here is to remember to position this slot across the frames rather than at one end and the bees will come up from across the brood box instead of just one side. The same applies to the Miller feeder, which has a slot across the middle of the feeder box. There's also the Brother Adam feeder, which has a cone-shaped access point in the middle of the feeder. But all of these feeders have the same feature. They generally are the same footprint that matches the size of the hive that you have. So you might have an Ashforth feeder that suits a national hive, but you can also have an Ashforth feeder that fits a Langstroth hive. They're sold with a variety of names and I guess the older feeders are named after the inventor of the style of the feeder. All of these feeders are available generally in wooden or plastic construction and some are designed to fit inside an empty super. This brings me on to the final feeder that I have in my list and it's one that I've used many many times and as I've talked about them before you'll not be surprised to learn that it's also my favourite feeder. It is of course the Maysmore Green jumbo rapid feeder. It's been a really useful tool for me and I'd recommend it to anyone looking for a large rapid feeder for a commercial or a national hive. It's basically a plastic tray which fits on top of the national or commercial footprint and has the same design as the four pint rapid circular feeder only it has two cone access points placed about a third and two thirds across the base with clear covers that fit over these feed holes and a separate lid that covers the feed reservoir. 
It will hold something like 13 litres, or 3.5 gallons of feed, which is generally more than enough, and has marks on the inside to show you how much syrup you've used. I don't think I've ever added a full 13 litres of feed, but it certainly holds as much as I need to get into the colony at any one time between visits, and that's a real benefit for me. Another good thing to remember is to make sure that your hive is level so that the sugar syrup settles at the point of each of the access points for the bees. One of the nice details about this feeder is hidden from view and might not be apparent to anyone using the feeder for the first time. If you turn the feeder upside down and look carefully underneath, you'll see that there's a ridge running all around the edge of three sides and down the middle. And this is repeated on the opposite side. It's tricky to describe, but the effect that it has is that it isolates each of the cone feed holes from the other. And here's the clever bit. If you push two national or commercial nuke boxes together, and those nuke boxes combined have a footprint that equals that of a national or commercial brood box, the feed holes are then sitting directly above the holes in the crime boards of each of those nukes and it isolates each nuke from the other. Thus, each nuke can access the syrup reservoir without coming into contact with the bees from the other nucleus colony. It's simply brilliant. It's how I've fed and overwintered my commercial nukes successfully for many years now. Another trick that helps the bees get all of the syrup from the rapid feeders is that once they've taken down as much feed as they can get from the access points, there always tends to be a small puddle left to one side or it will run to one of the corners or the sides because the hive isn't level. If you remove one of the cone covers from the rapid feeder cones, the bees can come up into the feeder reservoir without fear of drowning and clean out every last drop of syrup. Remember though, if you use this trick with two nukes, only remove one cover or you'll possibly start a riot. Next week I'm going to talk about the different syrups I've used and how I use them but for this week I wanted to mention one issue I found with the rapid feeders and earlier I mentioned a solution that I used by switching to the contact feeders. Over the years I've used a range of different feeders and also a range of different sugar syrups. These vary from homemade syrup using granulated sugar to more sophisticated commercially available brands. At various times when I've made up my own sugar syrup I've discovered that it has a tendency to go mouldy. That was until I discovered you could add thymol crystals to sugar syrup, which would prevent it from going mouldy. This also had a knock-on benefit in that the thymol is effective against Nosema, and while it's illegal to use thymol to treat Nosema here in the UK, it is legal to use thymol to prevent mould and fermentation of the sugar syrup. Odd, I know, but there it is. It's basically down to the fact that nobody has registered a thymol-based product for use in the treatment of Nosema. Certainly not to my knowledge thus far anyway. But here's the potential issue. If you make up a batch of what they would call thymolated or thymolized syrup, the description changes depending on the side of the pond you happen to be on. Anyway, if you make up a batch of thymol syrup and feed it via a rapid feeder, you may inadvertently kill bees, and here's why. The feeder with the thymol syrup goes on top of the crime board, on top of the brood box, which is naturally full of bees. Bees, which are generating a fair amount of heat. This heat goes up and naturally raises the temperature of the syrup, which in turn 
seems to cause the thymol to vaporise, and this sits as a clear cloud of thymol vapour hanging above the reservoir of sugar syrup. The bees move up into the feeder and down the side of the cone to take up the syrup, only to find themselves in a cloud of thymol vapour and unable to breathe, thus suffocating and falling into the syrup to die. I've had this happen on several occasions and failed until a couple of years ago to recognise what was happening. I've tried various strengths of thymol syrup combinations and the same result happens, but just with varying degrees of mortality. The way round it goes back to my comments earlier about the contact feeder. It all revolves around the way the contact feeder is used compared to the rapid feeders. Whereas the rapid feeder sits above the crime board and the bees go up into the feeder to access the syrup, with the contact feeder, the bees feed from the bottom of the syrup reservoir and any vapour is held at the bottom of the bucket, which is now at the top and thus doesn't get anywhere near the bees. Once the bees get to the last remnants of the syrup in the contact feeder, any vapour either stays in the bucket or else is moved around the bees without causing any harm. The bees don't find themselves caught in a vapour-killing zone with no escape. Of course, some of the commercially available feeds don't need the addition of thymol to prevent fermentation or the growth of mould. So, for those, it isn't such an issue. Next week, I'll take a closer look at what I've used for feeding my bees over the years and what we're doing this year to give you some ideas of how best to prepare your bees for the autumn and winter to come. Do catch up with more of my beekeeping journey by checking out the continually growing content list on my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey. I hope you have a great beekeeping week and thanks for hanging around until the end of the podcast. I'm Stuart Spinks and that was beekeeping short and sweet. Yeah.